Hey, everybody. Welcome into another edition of Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is a World Series edition between games two and three. We talk the World Series with a focus on pitching with the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the ace of research, James Smythe, and myself, Justin Shackle. Our great producer, Dan Work, is with us as well. Uh, Coney has migrated down to South Florida, so it's all sunshine and rainbows for him. James and I are stuck in dreary, rainy uh, New York, but uh, overall feeling good as we enter game three tonight between the D-backs and the Rangers. Gentlemen, how are your weekends? Well, other than, you know, uh, the Chiefs coughing it up in Denver, yeah, the Broncos kind of handed it to the Chiefs for the first time in, I think, almost eight years. They, the Denver Broncos beat the Kansas City Chiefs. So, you know, hey, every dog has their day. So give them credit. <laughs> and they were they were trolling them afterward with playing Taylor. Like, I don't follow yes. football that much, right? But <laughs> right. I knew that the Broncos ended the day by playing Taylor Swift at the end of their win. Yeah, and, and even the production got into it in terms of uh, how many yards per game that Travis Kelsey gets when she's in attendance or not. And I thought that was, you know, wow, that was a little overboard. That was that – was, Taking it to the next level, uh, his stats when she's in the stands. It's a huge split, and as a as a, a stats graphics, you know, sort of guy, I think that's a great graphic on those on those telecasts that they had last week when she was there, and he had a great game. Not so much this week. Uh, my Giants, not didn't fare much better. They uh, lost a terrible game. It's a shame somebody had to win that Jets Giants game. So condolences <laughs> to all of us who have to watch. <laughs> to the Jets and. Uh, uh, our, our producer Dan is is a big Jet fan and riding the Kool Aid. If you think like you have you have an idea of how Dan feels about his teams, um, obviously the Yankees I feel like are at the top, but he still gets really giddy about his Jets. So he's convinced that they are going to the playoffs at four and three. He held up the back page of one of the New York tabloid papers, so he is uh, all in even after that dreadful performance by both teams at MetLife Stadium over on Sunday. All right, first two the World Series books we're gonna look back on them but more and explain what they have told us about what could happen for the rest of the games here in the fall classic we'll touch on the pitching uh we'll, we'll dive into a little yankees talk as well but like we do with each episode it is the opener david starts us off with a topic david what do you have for us here between games two and three of the world series well, I, I know I'm a little biased. Obviously, I'm an old dog starting pitcher, so I love it when we see starting pitchers go deep in games or have become the storyline, right? It used to be the starting pitchers were the storylines, depending on what the matchups were, how deep you could go in the game. Uh, now it's become more of a, you know, a, a pitching storyline and bullpen storyline. And I, I get it. It's, it's a different different world we live in, but state of starting pitching you know it, it was pretty good to watch Beryl Kelly do it the way he did it and I think from a craftsmanship standpoint and you've seen this kind of uh, come back in vogue this year if you look at the way Michael King pitches several pitchers across the league are throwing a couple of different kinds of fastballs four seam two seam mixing it up I think Merrill Kelly struck out uh struck out batters with six different pitches you know in his outing the other night in the seventh innings uh seven inning start so uh you know that that was impressive that warmed my heart to see craftsmanship back and starting pitching back leading the way Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I seeing Merrill Kelly in game two of the world series. I was like, Coney is going to be over the moon <laughs> watching this guy. And when we're, he's going to be fired up when we get him in here, he did, he threw six different pitches, all 25% of the time or fewer. So he mixed his pitches. Great. Seven strong innings, one run, a Mitch Garver home run, three hits, no walks, nine strikeouts. And you're right, Coney, the nine K's three with the cutter, two with the four seamer, one each with the changeup, sinker, slider, curve. He had everything working, and he carved up a really good Texas lineup. The thing that jumped out at me after the game, just reading up on some of the the miscellaneous stats, the randomness that you know things that were uh, people were putting together about Merrill Kelly, because it was it was great. It was a great performance by a starting pitcher, but he was actually the first pitcher to complete seven innings in a World Series start 
since the 2019 World Series. Steven Strasburg did it in Game 6 for the Nationals against Houston. So we've gone nearly five years in the World Series without a starting pitcher uh, completing seven full innings. And you're right, David. Like, you go back, the starting pitcher makes up so much of the World Series lore over the sports grade history, and it's fading a little bit. Obviously, runs parallel with the the state of the pitching in today's game. Elite relievers coming uh, up, rising above the surface here. But there, there was something else that caught my eye at the World Series. Commissioner Rob Manfred spoke before the Fall Classic started, and I want to touch on this a little bit later. So let's save this. You're talking about reduced reducing the number of pitchers on a given roster from thirteen to twelve. So I think it all kind of intertwines, but. With, with Merrill Kelly, what I just said there, first pitcher to complete seven innings. Um, we see the wealth of starting pitcher or the caliber of starting pitchers both teams have. They're top heavy, obviously, and they have pitchers that are very capable of going seven. Will we see another starter accomplish this feat before the end of this World Series? What do you think? When's Merrill Kelly pitch again? <laughs> that sort of... <laughs> I guess it's it, it comes down. The problem is, is that as the series goes unfold, as the series unfolds, and you get deeper or closer to uh, to to the seventh game, that the games become more important, and managers manage a little differently. Especially if you get into a knockout game where uh, you you know you lose one or your your back or your backs to the wall kind of game. Uh, so that's gonna maybe preempt a chance to allow a pitcher to go a little deeper. But with that being said. There's some candidates here. Zach Gowan's very capable of, of getting it going, getting on his A game and running through, you know, the lineup three times, maybe even into the four time through the through the order. So it's possible, but it's less likely as the series unfolds for the reasons I just said. You know, I'll I'll say yeah, because I think we 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 you have the candidates, like you said, Coney. And if you get into a game five and it's Nathan Avaldi against Zach Gallon again, you're gonna be coming off of Two back-to-backs, game three, game four, game five. It's three days in a row. So if you use the bullpen a lot in games three and four, and we're pretty sure that, you know, with the starting pitching situation up in the air for both teams in game four, you're cobbling it together, bullpen games, maybe Torrey Lovello and Bruce Bochy would have to go a little deeper with their starter in game five. And and then you have a rematch in game six of uh, Kelly and Jordan Montgomery. So there's another opportunity there. So I say, sure, why not? Yeah, I'm with you. I think it could happen because the the number of times you're seeing the relievers obviously coming out of the bullpen, it's going to potentially take its toll. But uh, not only that, they're going to be the, the the circle of trust, I think, for both managers within their relievers is so small. It's so tight. You only have those three relievers maximum for both managers who they really trust in these games moving forward in the series. I think you're going to be forced to lean on your starters a little bit later as we keep going here in the fall classic. More Toe in the Slab is coming up. People, I need to tell you about a special offer from DraftKings because the NFL season is officially here. We've partnered with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official partner of the National Football League to bring all new customers an exciting way to join in on the action right now. New customers, download the DraftKings app, use the promo code SLAB, S-L-A-B, bet just five bucks, and boom, $200 in bonus bets hit your account instantly. That's right, new customers who bet only $5 will get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Staying on the action, use your $200 in bonus bets on DraftKings parlays, combine multiple bets together for a shot at an even bigger payout. If sports betting is not yet available in your state, don't worry. You can still get another fun with DraftKings Daily Fantasy, where they offer cash prize contests for nearly every sport. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. New customers use the promo code SLAB. Again, S-L-A-B. Bet just five bucks on any wager and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's promo code SLAB only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Um, So the Diamondbacks take game two, guys. Rangers took game one, six to five and 11. We know what happened there. Corey Seager, Adolis Garcia, massive home runs. Series tied, heading into game three tonight over in Arizona. Overall, what are your thoughts heading into game three with the series tied at one? I I think you're getting a peek into the future of the game. When you look at the way the Diamondbacks play baseball, uh, they're young, they're athletic, all the stolen bases. And the rules changes tried to tried to promote this this type of change 
in the game. And the Diamondbacks are ahead of the curve. That's one of the big reasons that they're in the World Series. Even though they had a negative run differential on the year, even though it, it didn't even look like they were going to make the playoffs until the last last month of the season when they got hot and went on that run. But the story, the moral of the story is, is it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch young athletic players moving around on both sides of the ball. Good defense, running the bases, moving base runners. I mean, there's a lot more action. And I think that that was probably the biggest factor in the rules changes was the lack of or the sort of the, the gap between something happening on the field. I think it went up to almost four minutes uh, was on average, you know, pre- before the rules changes where there was actually a ball in play or something happened other than a strikeout or a walk or something like that. So, yeah, I think that that's the pace they're looking for. That's the type of ball we're seeing. The Rangers are still dangerous because of their offense. I think their offense is, is deadly. That makes Merrill Kelly's effort even more impressive to shut down the Rangers like he did because that is the best offense going, at least in the American League. The Rangers had the best offense. Right, and it, it has been fun. And you talk about the brand of ball. This was not a very sexy matchup to a lot of people, Rangers, Diamondbacks in the World Series. But one thing you knew is you're going to see some good baseball this week. And and we've seen it through the first two games. And you mentioned the rule changes. I think, you know, increasing stolen bases. There's been, you know, a few more balls in play uh, this year. You know, not a crazy increase in batting averages or stolen base rates, but just a little increase. And the pitch clock really helped too, because now – those those three and a half four hour postseason games are much closer to three hours and the pace of play is a lot crisper and as far as game three moving ahead you have the rangers the road warrior rangers going to phoenix for three games they're uh, eight no on the road and um they're going to try to break the 1996 yankee record for eight straight eight straight road wins to begin a postseason so you have the Rangers there, and you have a great pitcher with question marks around him, and Max Scherzer on the mound in game three. Yeah, this is a massive game, obviously. It's a swing game. But I, I for the first two games, what jumps out to me the most, and I think you could obviously say it both ways, just the reality of where we're at tied at one, but I'm sort of surprised at just how much the Diamondbacks seemed in control over the first two games. I mean, the reality is they were winning game one until the ninth inning, and, you know, Corey Seager does what he does, but they they were winning that game, and the only thing that separated them from the victory was Paul Seawald. Then game two, they completely take over playing their style of baseball. So I feel like the Diamondbacks have shown that they are really in control for the majority of the time on the field so far. It's like, hey, what, what the NFL teams has the most time of possession? Like the Diamondbacks, to me, are in control of this series at the moment. Game three is going to mean a whole lot. Max Scherzer was the X factor for me heading into this series. And Bruce Bochy said something interesting about Scherzer. He said he's mostly stretched out for game three here. If you are Texas, what would you sign for regarding the length that Max Scherzer could give in game three tonight? Well, I think it's a question of how many pitches it takes him to get through five innings. And then you kind of look up and see where you're at at that point with Max Scherzer. But I was impressed with his stuff his last time out in terms of the quality of his pitches. Maybe the results weren't quite what he wanted them to be or what you're looking for from a postseason start. But his velocity was up in the mid-90s. His, his cut and his slider were very sharp, in my opinion. So if you're going to just rate the quality of his stuff, I thought it was pretty good. So I would expect him to get through five innings at least. Uh, if his pitch count's under control and he looks good, then he might be able to even go a little further, maybe even get get into the sixth inning. But the, you know that that's uh, it depends on how many pitches it takes him to get through the first five innings. It, it, once he gets there, I'm with Coney. Uh, he he's looked pretty good, all things considered. And for me, and a lot of times with the starting pitcher, I I am worried a little bit less about the inning total than the run. So if he gets through four innings, one run. You say, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. If if he can get through five, if it's two runs, five innings, I think the Rangers should be doing cartwheels. I'm trying to think who could they lean on behind him in the, in this spot here. Um, you had you had Heaney pitching game two, but he only threw six pitches. So can he come back like and a conventional starter? Can he come back on on short order like that? What are the options behind Scherzer here? Because I, I would be shocked if he did go past five innings. 
Yeah, I thought Heaney was going to be a big part of this because of the left-handed batters. We mentioned that in our last podcast. You know, I thought he was a good matchup for some of the lefties, including Corbin Carroll, because Heaney's a crossfire guy. He's kind of got funky stuff, a riding fastball and a kind of a, a, a an outlier slider that he throws. So, yeah, I still think he's going to get another shot at it. So, yeah, I wouldn't give up on him, even though it didn't go so well in his first try. But, you know, I, you know, Martin Perez was a little disappointing, too, if you're on the Texas side. You, the guy's got a really heavy sinker, good movements, uh, stylistically. So I think that the first go-round with those two lefties were, were a little disappointing, and they're going to have to be relied on again, in my opinion. At some point moving forward, it could be in, in a piggyback situation with Max Scherzer, as as James said, if you if you get through four innings in one run, you're pretty thrilled on the Texas side and what his pitch count is and how how he feels. That that's a candidate for a piggyback, whether that's Martin Perez or or Heaney, Andrew Heaney. Right, you have Heaney. He's he could do that. He's an option to start Game Four if you use him in the pen. Dane Dunning could start a Game Four. So Bruce Bochy has options, and you're coming off the off day after Game Two. So I feel like both managers really, but we're talking Texas. So Bochy could be a little more aggressive than he might, you know, maybe you bring in Josh sports for two innings, but you also have to weigh that with, well, we're, we're probably going to be playing three games in a row here, or we will be playing three games in a row and might have a six and seven to, to plan for down the line. But I feel like because of the off day, this is a day where you'd be more aggressive with the bullpen. Whereas in a game five, we were talking before about, you know, length from starting pitching, that might be a day where you want to be a little more aggressive with your starter. So the, you're, you're trying to weigh the balance here uh, with the World Series on the line. And it's a huge swing game. So we got a 1-1 series. And 1946 to today, that's the – since we've gone to this 2-3-2 format, you know, home, road, home. And teams that were 1-1 in the series and then won game three, the, those teams are 25-13 and 13 winning the series. So you don't have to be a mathematician to know that – taking that 2-1 lead is gigantic. I hate sounding so pessimistic uh, about a pitcher like Max Scherzer, but the, the Rangers could really be up against it, in my opinion, if he does not deliver those four innings, those five innings. And you're not asking for much right there in the grand scheme of things, but uh, we, we haven't seen it yet. I know the stuff, the substance looks pretty good considering where he's coming from, what he's battling back from. But uh, the, the bottom line is that you, you – it's feeling more and more to me like four or five innings is asking a lot of Max Scherzer at this point. I think he could put the Rangers up against it in this series with their pitching. Like James mentioned, they're about to go three straight games and it could get a little dicey if he doesn't deliver tonight. This is a big moment for, for him here in this postseason with the Rangers. What about Brandon Faw? You think he continues his mojo? He's been impressive to me. I think, you know, we, we heard that, you know, uh, he might have been a weak link. His numbers in, in the regular season suggested that, well, he had a rough go of it. But his stuff, once again, you know, there's a difference between looking at the raw numbers and looking at the, the, the stuff plus numbers, the quality of the stuff. And we mentioned it again you know, last week on, on our podcast about, wow, that his slider is high quality. And, and certainly James, I think, mentioned – you know, in stuff plus category in our last last go round is top 30 or maybe even top 20. I think it's probably taken a jump in postseason in terms of confidence and the conviction that he's throwing it with now. So, you know, he, he's no longer a rookie. He's had a full regular season. He's had some success in the postseason. So he's a different pitcher right now than he was during the regular season. And just speaking from experience, you know, that was the one thing I noticed about some of the rookies in, in the 90s. Namely, one example is Derek Jeter, 1996 Rookie of the Year. By the time we got to postseason, he wasn't a rookie anymore. He was the leader on that team. He was the guy we counted on. And from a confidence standpoint, he didn't think or play like a rookie. He, he had tremendous confidence from the success he had and when you're a young player, that can mean everything. So for, for fought, I think the success he's had so far in the postseason has given him tremendous confidence. So, you know, I would not be surprised to see him go out there and have a good good start to the game, at least. You know, I don't know how deep he can get into the game and whether he can keep the ball in the ballpark against this Ranger lineup. But it's the real key. You know, one or two hanging, hanging, hanging sweepers can leave the ballpark, and that can change everything. Well, Fott's – now we're talking about – Three straight terrific starts, and he had the four and a third shutout uh, in finishing the sweep against the Dodgers. Five and two thirds shutout with nine Ks in uh, Game Three of that NLCS that got Philly ba- uh, got them back in the series against the Phillies. 
And then in game seven, four innings, two runs, seven Ks. Doesn't jump off the page, but he was missing a lot of bats. And it was game seven. So it wasn't like he was pulled for ineffectiveness through four innings. It was high stakes, high leverage, and it was about getting into the bullpen late in that game. But he pitched really well. So in getting this kind of ties into Scherzer, you know, the the, the more pressure fought can put on Scherzer and the Rangers, I think it's going to be advantage Arizona because if if it's a tight game, maybe you pull the plug on Scherzer a little faster, even if he's pitching pretty well. With fought, if if the Rangers can get to him early and give Scherzer a little bit more of a cushion, then maybe you do push him deeper into the game, which would help Texas and feel like if it's going to be more important for Texas to strike first and get a quick number on fought than it is the other way around to me. I'd agree with that. Um, I, I also taking a look back at a nine one win for Arizona in game two, I, you know, on both sides, it allows each team's main relievers to get some extra rest here. They weren't pitching game two. So they, they've been on rest since Friday. I know that means a lot for Ginkle, who threw nearly 30 pitches. Seawald threw, I think, 22 pitches in game one. Uh, and one thing that I always watch for in World Series is like, hey, what's the winning formula? What's the formula? What's the pitching formula to a win for each team? With the Diamondbacks, I think we already know it. We know it before the Rangers. You know that it, the, the like, you know, for lack of a better term, we keep calling it the circle of trust for a manager like Tori Lovello here. His pitching circle of trust, it consists of six pitchers, in my opinion. You have your three starters, Gallon, Kelly, and and Fought here, and then in the bullpen, Seawald, Ginkle, and and Thompson. It, is that enough? Like, can the D-backs win a title by essentially using six pitchers for, for each game that, that brings them to a win? Probably not. You know, in my opinion, somebody else is going to have to step up at some point. I think James brings up, uh, you know, uh, another great point in terms of, you know, this game three is so important because by the time you get to game five, these bullpens could be worn down and that's when you're going to need somebody else to step up. And, you know, uh, one of the greatest examples I can give is, you know, with the Yankees in postseason in 1996, we placed, we played these Texas Rangers and it was, there was a, there was a, a game, I think uh, down in Texas uh, in the middle of that series where nobody could get Juan Gonzalez out. Juan Gonzalez was wearing us out and a guy named David Weathers came in and struck him out, came in with a big spot and got him out. And that's what you're going to need. You're going to need an outlier like that. David Weathers, great guy, had a nice career, but he was not the main part of that bullpen by any measure. But he was the guy that had to come in in that spot because there was nobody else uh, in that point in the game. And and he came through. And, the, you know, the Jeff Nelsons, the Graham Lloyds, the Ramiro Mendozas, I mean, the list goes on and on, Mike Stanton. And of course, Mariano Rivera at the end of the bullpen. But in that situation, somebody like a David Weathers had to come through. He did for us. Somebody's going to have to do it too in this series as well. So, Coney, you're talking about game four of that ALDS in Texas. And you guys are going for the series win. But Kenny Rogers gave it up in a, in a rough start. You're down 4 3, a couple guys on, nobody out in the fourth inning, already down a run. Gonzalez coming up. David Weathers comes in, strikes out Wangan, gets Will Clark on a double play, holds the fort. Bernie, it's a home run, three strong innings. Yankees come back to take the lead, and he can hand the ball right to Mariano. So he bridged innings four, five, and six, and off you guys go. So I think there's going to be that opportunity. I'm, I'm eyeing game four for that because you don't know what the starting pitching, maybe a piggyback situation for Texas. Arizona might be like, in the NLCS where it's just a full-blown bullpen game where you guys, that's where you bring in your, your Joe Mantiply and, and your Miguel Castro and Andrew Saul Frank and, and that next year relievers, that's going to be Jonathan Holstaff uh, in that. So I think maybe you see a hero emerge from that group for either team in game four. And the other thing I keep wrestling with guys, D-backs have their six pitchers that that kind of main, makes up their formula, their pitching formula. Yeah, you need an unsung hero there. It feels like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't know if the Rangers have like identified their pitching formula to a win, those main guys that you're going to see. I mean, you have Montgomery, you have Evaldi, you have, you have Max Scherzer based on who he is, not 
really what he's done here in October. And in the bullpen, there's LeClerc, there's Spores. You know, do you want to include Dane Dunning there? I don't know what a role as Chapman is. You know, I, I I don't know how big of an issue it is two games into the series that, to me, from the outside, Bruce Bochy may not know who he can identify among his circle of trust. Great point. It's all the way around. We know that the <clears throat> that the Rangers are were carried by their offense. You know, they, we know that's the strength of their team. So yeah, piecing it together in the bullpen's always going to be an adventure. Yankee fans know that. You know, I think I think Bochy's got a good handle on Chapman at this point. When to bring him in? Quick hook if he looks like he's lost his control or if he doesn't have it right away. Um, I think. It, you know, I got to give Bo- Bochi credit. If anybody can piece this together, it's probably him. And all the more reason to look for a starter like Scherzer to get pushed a little, little further, maybe, or, or uh, you know, for Bochi not to manage in such a new school way. You know, third time through the order, make the change. He's going to manage by his gut and what he sees a little bit too, as well. And I think that's the balance between new and old school that everybody loves about Bruce Bochi. So it's going to be interesting to see how he maneuvers this. But you're right. You know, the Texas bullpen can can be a landmine, uh, you know, for for uh, for late innings trying to navigate through it. That's right. And it's a tighter circle of trust, as, as you'd say, Shaq. And you know, maybe someone like Cody Bradford comes in and, and as a lefty because Chapman is a little bit of a mystery day to day. And you talk about those lefties in Arizona's lineup there, Coney, and maybe Cody Bradford is someone who ascends into it into a bigger role over these next few days what do you think of the way the the rangers have been able to um deal with the the d-backs running game here arizona has over 20 i mean let me get the exact number in terms of stolen bases they have 21 stolen bases in the postseason they have uh four in the world series they i think they had three in game one alone yet they lost they had one in game two um what can the rangers do to limit the d-backs running game there's not a lot of weapons anymore because of the pitch clock. You got to deliver the ball. You can't hold the ball. One of the best things I I could do uh, when I pitch was just hold the ball, try to freeze the runners. But you're you're at the mercy of the pitch clock now, so that weapon's kind of gone. So really, the, the the one thing you could do is just deliver the ball quicker to home plate. First and foremost, try not to get as many base runners if you can, obviously. But secondly, you get the ball to your catcher in a good spot. Uh, um, you know, Heim can throw the ball a little bit. He's got good arm speed. He's got a good arm strength too, as well. As well. So, you know, if you give him a chance, you know, he 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 quite possibly could get you an out at second base and throw some of these guys out. A couple of thrown outs at second base can slow the running down, game down better than anything. You know, it, it's it's a momentum play. Runner, you know, base running is kind of like uh, you know hitters when you see sort of you know, an inning where batters bat around uh, and hitters just kind of can't wait to get to the plate and they're aggressive and turning it loose. That's the way it is with base running. So the way to stop it is, is to, to throw somebody out. And then the next thing, you know, it's like, Oh, wait a minute, this guy's throwing the ball well today. You know, let's, let's not be so, so, uh, so carefree with trying to steal bases whenever we want. The diamondbacks were a good base stealing team all year. It was a little, there was some head scratching, for a lot of the postseason, where is the Diamondbacks running game? The the flip really switched in those last two games of the NLCS in Philly when they came back from down three to two. So the so Arizona is 21 for 24 stealing bases in the playoffs. But a lot of that is just the last four games. So the, the two games in Philly to win the pennant and the first two games in the World Series here, they're 13 for 13 stealing bases, four, 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 one. So and, and, and even then, you know, you have a big lead. You're not going to be running like crazy up nine to one. So Arizona really flipped the switch there. And you mentioned Jonah Heim, Coney. He's a, he's a good one behind the plate. And I mean, yes, he's one of the better pitch framers, but even just in terms of throwing, you know, he's, he makes up for an average pop time with a good exchange. He was seventh on StatCast list of catcher caught stealings above average, comparing catchers to the, to the average and, and, and how they control the running game themselves, giving credit to the catcher compared to the pitcher. Well, Heim is seventh, and number one is Gabriel Moreno, so two two good ones on display in this World Series, but Heim's a good one, and we'll just see how they can try and, and water things down and 
And Coney, you mentioned it. A lot of times, bases are stolen on the pitcher, right? Yes. Give your catcher a chance, especially if your catcher has a good arm. And to your point, James, I think Jonah Heim, too. I mean, you look at – they measure the arm strength now as well, miles per hour. How hard does the catcher throw, just like a pitcher? And he's, I think, up in the mid-80s, 86, 87 miles an hour, I believe, is what I saw for Jonah Heim. Um, you know, that's also elite in my mind. You know, you see a lot of catchers, you got to get rid of it, pop. You know, sometimes they're in the low 80s in terms of miles per hour, how hard they throw the ball to second base. When you get up in the mid-80s or higher – uh, then, then you're you're in the upper echelon uh, of catcher's arm strength. So yeah, if your pitcher gives you any chance at all, uh, then yes, uh, you, you know he's got to he, he can absolutely throw some of these runners out. I actually shorted the D-backs one stolen base, so they stolen five here in the World Series, four in Game One, one in Game Two. Well, which way do you think this is going to go here, guys, for the rest of the series? Are, are the Rangers going to get a, a grip on this, or can the D-backs? gain more and more momentum on, on the base pass? Like, can they get to 30 stolen bases before the World Series is out this postseason? What do you think? Well, I, you know, once again, it's about, you know, you can't steal first base. So it all gets comes down to on-base percentage. You got to get on base to, to take advantage of it. And then the situation arises to where you, you absolutely can steal some bases. It's it's not like you just get on first base and go the first pitch every time you can. So, um, you know, with all that being said, Absolutely. You know, the D-backs have more and more confidence with each game that goes by. You know, we talked about them sort of uh, having a chip on their shoulder because nobody thought they should be there. Uh, Nobody thought they'd have a chance. And even in the World Series, it looked like a bit of a mismatch. When you look at the regular season, the Diamondbacks, well, they really came on late. Their young players are some of the best in the game. And their pitching is real in terms of uh, Gallon and Kelly. And at the end of the games, you know, and, 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 you know, Paul Seawald's blow up the other in game one, notwithstanding, they have a lot of confidence going right now. And that's a dangerous team because they're, it's us against the world mentality. Nobody believes in us. Nobody thought we'd be here. The big networks didn't want us on because we're not a big, sexy team. Yeah. That that's what I'd be saying in that clubhouse. I'd be pumping it up and saying, you know what? It's us against the world in here and let's show them and use that for motivation. And uh, absolutely, uh, Diamondbacks are dangerous in that regard. Now, what can take care of that is if the, if the Rangers start mashing. Nothing takes the wind out of your sails more than some big home runs, you know, some especially with runners on base. And if Texas gets going and starts mashing like they can and they hit a couple of big home runs, then all bets are off on the Arizona side. You know what I can't wait for in that regard with the us against the world type of thing? I can't wait for Chris Mad Dog Russo to be on the field for, for BP <laughs> at Chase Field yeah. with, with the D-backs because he wasn't there on site for games one and two, but I know he's going to be over in Arizona. So like I would go as far as like having Russo come into the clubhouse and address the team. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm I'm looking forward to that. But you're right. Yes. Uh, they, they, they operate with a healthy chip on their shoulder. Um, and I think that's a good distinction right there. There, there's a healthy chip when you can just act recklessly with a chip on your shoulder. Uh, credit to Tori Lovello because it's a it's a healthy chip for the D-backs there. Yeah, and they got guys. You got multiple guys who can run. It's not all one guy. You know, you get a couple out of Tommy Pham, a couple out of Lourdes Gurriel this postseason. Alex Thomas can run. Perdomo, Cattell, Arte has three. Corbin Carroll has four steals. But uh, I bet you might not. Uh, you might be surprised to see that the team leader in stolen bases this postseason, Christian Walker, who only had 11 <laughs> during the regular season, yeah. he was 11 for 11, and now he's five for five in the playoffs. So Christian Walker, a, a sneaky speedster this October. Christian Walker obviously hasn't lit it up in, in the hits department, though. Um, one of the more underperforming players at the plate. He did get a hit at the end of game two, and so did Marcus Simeon for the Rangers there. But those are two two star hitters for their respective lineups are major pieces for their offenses that just haven't been in a rhythm for much of this postseason. I, I initially was thinking, Hey, like which struggling star is more uh, disappointing at this postseason, but I want to kind of keep it more positive here. Which one do you think could uh, be more likely to, to break out of it and help his offense the rest of the way? Is it Simeon or Walker? Well, I'll say this. I think the most important one is Walker. Because he's the one guy in that lineup that can provide some power, a real legitimate power hitter to match the Texas lineup power. So if we get into a bit of a slugfest 
and Texas does what they're supposed to do or what they're very capable of doing, then, you know, you're going to need to have something more than small ball. You're going to have to have something more than stolen bases or great base running or great athleticism. You're going to have to have somebody hit the ball over the wall if you, to match Texas if they start to get it going, and that's Christian Walker. So to me, moving forward, as, as, as opposed to, you know, who's been the most disappointing so far, it's more like who needs to get it going moving forward? Who's the most important moving forward? And, you know, Simeon's got a little more cover in his lineup with the Rangers. They've, they've got pop up and down the lineup. Diamondbacks, not so much. They really need Walker to be that guy to kind of offset the Texas power. See, I love that because I was thinking Marcus Simeon because he's the leadoff guy. He can set the tone. He can set the table for Corey Seager and Evan Carter and all the other guys. He has more cover in the lineup. You're right there. But I think Simeon, this is a guy who he's going to be a top three, top five for American League MVP. And he's really struggled this postseason. 194 average, only a 265 on base percentage, very little slug. He has two extra base hits, a pair of doubles uh, back in the DS and wildcard series. So he has not had an extra base hit since game three when they finished the sweep of the Orioles. So I think Simeon is going to be key there, and I think he turns it around this week in Arizona. Yeah, I'm rolling with Simeon, too. I think if the Rangers end up losing this series, there's going to be a lot of finger-pointing at, at Marcus Simeon for for not providing that that spark at the top of, of this Rangers lineup. I mean, it, it, it could be feast or famine with the way they were swinging game one. Game one, what did we see? The two big home runs late. Yeah, they put up four runs earlier, but the, the, the two home runs stick out. Uh, game two, a lot of swing and miss from that lineup, only generated one run. I think if they do fall short here, you're going to see more finger pointing in Marcus Simeon's direction versus the D-backs if they come up short with with Christian Walker. So, uh, And I also do believe that Simeon could be in line for uh, a likelier bounce back here with uh, with Texas. Um, we, we, we started this with an opener talking about how nice, refreshing it was to see a starting pitcher in the World Series go seven innings and work the way that Merrill Kelly was working for the Diamondbacks. Something that Commissioner Rob Manfred mentioned at the start of the World Series, met with the media, had his had his World Series press conference that caught my eye here. He said that the league plans to reduce the number of pitchers allowed on a roster down to 12. Uh, right now it's at 13, so it can go back. Uh, he's looking to bring it down to 12, perhaps by 2025. And the whole purpose of that, in his words, is to bring value back to the starting pitcher here. Do you think that move would have its desired effect here in the age that we're in? To a certain extent, probably so. I mean, it's one pitcher, the difference between 13 and 12 on the staff. Um, you know, I, I pitched on staffs where there were 10 pitchers on a staff, right? I mean, there was one middle reliever, you know, maybe uh, a couple of setup guys and then and then a closer so and maybe a lefty a loogie the loogie's kind of a thing of the past too um yeah i think it probably could it's it, 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 it's incremental you know kind of trending in that direction to encourage maybe a little more depth from starting pitching um yeah yeah I, we'll see i think that it, it's got to be more than just doing it on the major league level it has to be conditioning throughout in the minor league level to be able to train pitchers to go a little deeper, to allow them to go three times through the order. It seems like now that the trend has been to, to establish guys who can go once through the order, or even if you're developing young pitchers in the minor leagues, you know, it's almost like, hey, you know, three innings, four innings, that's fine, maybe five innings. Very seldom do you see starting pitchers in the minor leagues uh, be allowed to kind of get deep into the game. So that's where the change is going to come. And that's going to take time to get that into the pipeline, to get that sort of training, that sort of mindset down through the system and have it organizational wide that then it'll feed to the major league level. I love this. And this is how you turn the tide. There have been a, a lot of proposed rules. Well, what if you tie the dh to the starting pitcher and if you pull the pitcher you lose this guy it, it sounds like a lot of gimmickry i think you do it by setting a structure and saying hey it there used to be no limit on on the pitchers and you and we would see 14 and 15 man staffs you get to 13 do this for a couple of years you bring it down to 12 and who knows maybe three four five years down the line you go to 11 that's how you do it that's how you get 
pitchers to go deeper into the games as managers would be less reliant on the bullpen. Yes, it's quote unquote better for limiting runs or it's more efficient, but a lot of people don't like the revolving door of the bullpen. So this is a structure you can put the teams on. Then you talk about downstream effects, getting more contact into the game. Well, you, you might be leaning on more pitchers more often. These are the kinds of things that would favor offense. So if you want to bring strikeouts down a little bit, I think you would be doing this to limit the bullpen door swings open. Guy comes in all out for 15, 16 pitches for an inning. Goodbye. Who's next? Come in, throw an inning. Who's next? And I think that you would also see a, a tick down in the strikeout rate and swing and miss rate and things like that if you do have a, a smaller pitching staff. I'm all for it. I like the intended purpose. Uh, I think I'm a little concerned from a health perspective how it could look at the very beginning. How do you implement it? Uh, David, I'm with you in terms of it having to be something that's incorporated from the lowest level of the minors all the way up through the majors. But like, how does that look? Like if you're a minor league pitching instructor, what are you telling your pitchers after so many number of years now where you're, you're having that grip and rip approach, you know, you're, you're deviating away from that. What does that look like? Uh, I'm not smart enough to, to know that. I don't know if, if you're a, if you're a pitching instructor in the minor leagues, like what are you telling your your pitchers as soon as next season as we work toward this? Well, I think you have to be more well-rounded to get deeper into games. And I think that's kind of where there's been a lot of friction between old school pitching coaches and new school analysts in terms of the new school is to identify your best two pitches and throw them over and over again. Sort of a redundant strategy, you know, with uh, we'll take Carlos Rodon for an example just, Four seamers up and sliders down, and that's it. You don't mess with a lot of other pitches, just maybe for show here and there. <clears throat> but um, I think, you know, you're going to have to teach more craftsmanship. You're going to have to have that change up. You're going to have to have that third pitch. You're going to have to have uh, different looks uh, in, in terms of being able to get deeper into the games and, and to, to, you know, get around, you know, less pitchers on a staff. If it's 12 pitchers on a staff, if that's what it is, then that's what you're going to have to teach kids in the minor leagues. You know what? Deception works. A third pitch works. You know, it may not light up the metrics. It may not look good on Rep Soto. But if you incorporate it in the right way and use it the right way, it can be very effective. And and that's how you're going to get deeper into the games. So uh, a, a possible subtle change coming up in the next couple of years that could provide a long-term lasting effect on how the game looks. I'm all for it. Uh, pitchers going from 13 down to 12 on Major League Active rosters, perhaps by 2025, in the words of the commissioner. Uh, all right, guys, let's get to some Yankees talk. Not a whole lot going on with the World Series happening, but there were a couple of items that did come out late last week. Sean Casey not returning as hitting coach, but the big one that has a lot of people talking here are the reports that the Yankees and Padres have had uh, introductory discussions, I guess you could call them, regarding Juan Soto here. Um, and then we keep hearing new information the Cubs are said to be interested we don't even know if San Diego has any intention on trading him they want to compete but they also have to be cost conscious here as we get into 2024 my question to you guys if the Padres are serious about trading Juan Soto here he's going to be a free agent at the end of next season so you get him for one full year uh who would you say has the best chance of landing Juan Soto is it the Yankees is it the Cubs or are you taking the field I think the Yankees would be highly motivated in that sort of a situation for obvious reasons. The year they just had, the fan base would really light up. That'd be the type of offseason move move that would light up people like Dan Rourke, you know, and and, and get them going again, talking Yankees baseball in the middle of winter. Uh, the wild card in all this is the revenue streams that the San Diego Padres have that are kind of in question now, namely the, the local television revenue that's now, you know, the Bally uh, network, Bally's network is now bankrupt and, and especially kind of targeting individual markets. San Diego is one of those markets. So we don't know how that's going to impact their bottom line. Uh, Peter Seidler is one of the best owners out there, highly motivated to win. They're even still talking, you know, quietly out there that they're going to try to extend Juan Soto. So there, there, there's no telling on 
you know, how big of an impact the local television revenue is going to have on their decision-making moving forward. But with that being said, I think the Yankees, I would pick the Yankees to be a favorite uh, because of the, the, the high motivation they would have and the need to be able to slide him into their lineup in between Giancarlo Stanton and, and Aaron Judge. He's like the perfect fit, a lefty high on, uh, you know, sees a lot of pitches, not only high on base percentage, I think he had a career high in home runs as well. I'd like to see what he could do at Yankee Stadium. It'd be interesting to watch. He's one of the best hitters in the sport. He's one of the best hitters to start his career in the history of the game. And these guys don't grow on trees. And the opportunity to get someone like this doesn't come around very often. You could wait a year and and just back up a Brinks truck and, and bring him in in free agency. A trade, you said it would it would light things up. It sure would. I'm still in. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products like Venom heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Believe it, when I see it, mode with, uh, with the Padres possibly trading him, they acquired you know three runs with him, and the first one went very well with the, the Cinderella run to the NLCS. Second run, uh, very disappointing this year, as the Padres and Yankees were probably the two most disappointing teams in baseball in 2023. They got one more bite at the apple. Their financial concerns and, and all that, I... Still, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. The Yankees should and probably will be one of the uh, the highest contenders for them. I guess I would have to, at this point, I'm a little skeptical of the trade. I guess I would take the field just because I get more teams in my pocket. But the Yankees uh, should definitely be one of the uh, one of the top front runners if the Padres do say, yes, he is going to be on the move. Yeah, one thing I'll say is I will not bet against the Yankees, when they are motivated to do something, when they are motivated to get a talent like Garrett Cole, they get him. They're never really de- denied in that regard when they're motivated. So I think I, I wouldn't bet against Juan Soto being a Yankee down the road. As soon as the start of next season, I'm not sure. I think if the Yankees are motivated to get Juan Soto, they'll get him in free agency. If the Padres do decide that they want to end up uh, trading him, if you are any contending team and you think they're that you're the, that one piece away with a player like like Juan Soto putting you over the top then this is the rare chance of getting that type of player for just one year well every team can afford one player like Soto for the 30 million ish that he's going to make in arbitration teams that may not be able to afford him with that long-term contract that he's eventually going to get they can afford him right now in a trade for that one year. So I could see more teams taking a shot here if he's made available. If you're the Yankees or the Cubs, you're dealing with with some other teams, teams like maybe like the Orioles, and that's just the team I'm picking randomly out of my hat, looking to just rent a guy like Juan Soto. They could have the prospect capital that might be more appealing to the Padres. You can't control that if you're the Yankees or the Cubs. So it's going to be interesting because if Soto is made available, there's really no excuse for any team to not check in on what it would take to land him for that one year as a rental piece. So I would take the field in this instance. Long-term, if the Yankees are motivated, I'll go with the Bombers. Good points all the way around, without a doubt. I'm, I'm just not convinced that Peter Seidler is going to pull that trigger. He's just one of the most highly motivated owners we have out there. And uh, even with the uh, television contract in, in, up in, up in the air right now, I still believe that he thinks that down the road, looking at the big picture, he'll make it up down the road somewhere. At least that's what he's always said. That's what he's been on record as saying. So, you know, it's not as nice as, as it is to talk about Juan Soto in a trade. I'm not sure Peter Seidler is going to pull that trigger. Juan Soto, only 25. He turned 25 last week. And he's, it's weird because, you know, he came up so young. So he's going to be entering his seventh big league season in 2024. But he's still so young. And so good his career slash line, 284, 421 on base with a 524 slug. His OPS plus 157 for his career. That is that's a career season for a lot of all-star players. That's just the that's just regular old Juan Soto. 
right, guys, before we get out of here, uh, next three games of the World Series in Arizona, I want a, a quick prediction from both of you. Not so much what the end result might be, wins and losses, just something that you predict will happen, something we will see over the course of the next three games of the World Series. Well, I, on the back end, what we will see is this series go back to Texas, in my opinion. So that that's one prediction. Uh, another thing I think we will see is um, <clears throat> is what comes to the forefront. And a lot of people were talking about the small ball that Arizona has endeared themselves to the old school generation. I think long ball comes back. I think the, the home run differential plays a big, big part in Texas uh, over these three games in Arizona. And I do believe that Arizona's, you know, that they're not going to get swept, but the series goes back to Texas. So I guess that that's my big prediction uh, is that uh, Texas starts hitting homers again and the series goes back to Texas. I'm with you, Coney. I think it goes back to Texas. Uh, I don't think anyone's really going to run away with it at this point. I said it was going to be Rangers and six at the beginning. No reason to change it now. And uh, I just think we're going to get some really good games, tight games, well-played baseball in these last three, four, five games of the MLB season. And um, it's a little weird because I feel like both teams have a reason to really feel good right now. You would think, well, Arizona's probably outplayed Texas so far. And, you know, them being a big underdog and starting the series on the road, the cliche, oh, well, just steal one game out of the first two and then come home. So they have to be feeling really good. But also Texas, they could easily be down to nothing. And they kind of stole game one. But between that and how seemingly comfortable they've been playing away from home, I feel like they have a really good reason to feel great going into these middle three games the next three nights in Arizona. So I think we'll just get some uh, really good baseball the next few days. I'm with you on that regard. I think the games are going to be competitive. I think the series does go back to Texas. I'm going to say Brandon Fott pitches like a stud yet again here in game three. Big swing game. Does that mean that the D-backs the will win? Not sure, but I think Fott provides a lot on the mound in a starter's role for these Diamondbacks. And also, I keep hearing that Jake Storiali is going to be at Chase Field near the pool for game five, I believe. So I also predict that you're going to see Jake Storiali get wet in the pool over at Chase Field. That's my prediction. That's my bold prediction. <laughs> well, we got to look for that now. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. All right, guys. That's going to do it for us here. Make sure you tune into the John Boy Media World Series live stream that happens for every World Series game. You never know who's going to be uh, in the house watching those live streams uh, from the John Boy Studios. And we will talk to you as we along here in the Fall Classic Rangers and Diamondbacks. Game three coming up. The next three in the desert should be very entertaining. For David, for James, for our great producer, Dan Work, I'm Justin Shackle. We will talk to you as we continue to go along here in the Fall Classic on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, production of John Boy Media.